Man, you know it's Easter Sunday when Jared's shredding on electric guitar back there. That's awesome. Gets me all the more amped. Um, I don't know what this morning's been like for you guys. It's been pretty awesome for our family. We did what we do every Easter Sunday, which is put on YouTube videos of hymns being sung in the, sung in the most intensified fashion. We even put on Dolly Parton's rendition of He's Alive this morning with her in her over-exaggerated white dress. And our kids walked up and were like, Daddy, is that Elsa? She's beautiful. And so it was, it's been great. I love Easter. Uh, my name's Jamie. Uh, if you're new here, if we haven't met, I'm, I'm one of the pastors here. Um, I could not be more excited this morning. Um, really not because we're saying anything novel. We talk about the resurrected Jesus around here every single Sunday. But uh, there is something unique at the same time. You celebrate the fact that your children are alive every day, and yet there's something glorious about their birthday when it rolls around that, that makes it all the more intensified. I don't know about you, but Easter Sunday has, has always been somewhat of an enigma to me. Christians gather, oftentimes improving the dress code a bit, and the purpose of gathering is to celebrate the resurrection of God from the dead. Which begs the question, why was God dead in the first place? What is all that about? We celebrate the resurrection of God from the dead. And in our hyperchurched, under-gospeled subculture that we call the South, that's normal. It's normal to put on your Sunday best on this particular day, no matter who you are, no matter what your background is, no matter what you believe even. It's normal to flood church buildings throughout this area on this particular Sunday to talk about the resurrection of God from the dead. I don't know what your story is. For me personally, I grew up in and out of the church as a kid. I know what it's like to put on your, your Sunday best and to wonder why you're doing it. Why does it matter that my tie is straight? Why, why does it matter? Why does my external appearance have to be so pristine when internally our family is a bit of a mess right now? Why this particular Sunday and no other Sundays? Is God keeping score? I mean, is he awarding more points for Easter attendance and dress code compliance? What's going on here culturally? Those are just a few of the questions that, that flooded my mind as a kid this time of year. I was, to be honest with you, perfectly content with standing on the outside looking in on the church. And yet, every single Easter Sunday without fail, I was there. I couldn't escape it. Couldn't get away from Easter Sunday. Maybe that's you. Maybe that's how you feel this morning. Maybe this is, if you're honest, the last place you want to be, but for some cultural reason, you're here. And, and if that is you, I'm excited that you're here. A couple things that we're going to get after this morning. My hope is really to simply answer two questions for us this morning. And, and there are two questions that really and truly do bear the weight of eternity. The first question, is there actually evidence to support the historicity of the resurrection? Can we trust that What's said to have taken place on Easter Sunday a couple thousand years ago actually happened, number one. And secondly, is the doctrine of the resurrection something that's only to be taken out of the proverbial china cabinet on special occasions? Or does the doctrine of the resurrection actually truly have relevance for our everyday lives? Evidence and relevance. That's what we're going after this morning, those two things. And so if you have a Bible, you can open up to Mark chapter 15. We'll be in verse 40 and working our way through a portion of chapter 16. Ultimately, if you don't have a Bible, there should be one underneath one of the seats in the row in front of you. You can grab one of those Bibles and open up to this morning's passage. If you come in this morning and you don't own a Bible or the Bible that you do happen to own is a difficult translation to track with, you're more than welcome to take that Bible with you as the church's Easter gift to you. Let me, let me do this. Let me jump in and, and pray for us and we'll 
dive into the scriptures and get to work this morning. Jesus. Just the very fact that I would begin a prayer with the name Jesus is a declaration that you're not dead, that you're alive. The very fact that we can say the name Jesus in a prayer is a declaration of the very doctrine that we celebrate this morning as a church. Jesus, you have risen from the grave. You're triumphant over sin, Satan, death, and hell. I pray this morning that if there are any who come in this morning skeptical of the resurrection, that they would encounter the evidence that is there to be found in the scriptures, even the circumstantial evidence outside of the scriptures and would be compelled by what they see. I pray for those of us who do come in professing to know and love and follow you, Jesus, that our faith would be strengthened by the evidence that we come face to face with this morning. And ultimately, I pray that we would walk out of this place not as a people who blend into the rest of culture here in the South, as people who treat the resurrection as some piece of fine china to be pulled out of the cabinet once a year, to be dusted off, and then to be put right back in the cabinet as we leave this place this morning. No, I pray that we would be different. I pray that we would leave this place this morning and put on display for a watching world the reality that the resurrection of Jesus Christ has implications for everyday living and that people would be moved and stirred by what they see in our very lives to consider the gospel of Jesus Christ. God, would you work? Would you move in our own hearts? Would you metaphorically roll the stone away from our hearts, God, and and awaken us out of our slumbers for your glory and our joy by the power of your Holy Spirit? It's in the name of the risen Jesus that I pray. Amen. If you weren't around on Friday evening... Uh, You missed a pretty spectacular moment. Our very first Good Friday service, it was incredible. Um, It was difficult. We walked out of this room in darkness, still wrestling with the implications of the death and burial of Jesus. We sang hymns that we normally sing, but we stopped on verse 3 rather than moving into verses 4 and 5 where we sing of Jesus' triumphant resurrection, and we just let it sit like a song that ends on a minor chord, sort of unresolved. Much of our focus on Good Friday was the theme of darkness. The day that Jesus was crucified was an incredibly dark day in human history. In fact, there's never been a darker day in human history. In Mark's gospel account, as we saw on Friday, he gives us a visual depiction of the darkness of that day, a supernatural darkness descending upon the land in the heat of the noonday sun, a darkness meant to communicate something of significance to us, a sign of God's judgment falling upon Jesus in our place. Jesus Christ The gospel tells us, hung on a splintered Roman wooden cross, the Father's beloved, now the Father's forsaken, bearing the judgment of God on behalf of sinners under the darkened skies of Jerusalem. And it's not just the skies that are described as being darkened in the scriptures. Again, we talked about this on Friday. It's you and me. Ephesians 5.8, Paul says, for at one time you were darkness. Unable to see yourself, like a person trying to see their hand right in front of their face in a darkened room. No true sense of identity. And not only that, completely disoriented by the darkness of our lives without any true sense of direction. Maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you come in struggling to know who you are, where you're going, trying to figure that out. The beauty of Good Friday is not only that Jesus bore our judgment, the judgment that should have fallen on us for our sin, it's that he also bore our darkness and disintegration, providing us with access to the true source of light and direction and identity, namely God. 
Coming back to the Apostle Paul's words. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. The reason that we can celebrate and declare the darkest day in human history good it's because as we fix our eyes on the crucified Jesus, we see the hope of salvation. We see the hope that's ours in Jesus taking our darkness upon himself. The only darkness that could have destroyed us forever. But, but here's the reality. The crucifixion of Jesus in and of itself is not sufficient. It's not. Around the time that Jesus walked the earth, there were dozens of messianic movements in Israel. And in most every case, the messianic leader was executed and the movement died along with her leader only one messianic movement not only did not collapse but actually grew and over the course of just a few hundred years managed to spread throughout the entire roman empire so the question that begs to be answered is what's so different about the messianic movement led by jesus what sets him apart and the answer to that question has everything to do with what happened in the wake of good friday first of all Notice the trail of evidence that Mark leaves us with regarding the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. If you pick up the story in Mark chapter 15, verse 40, Mark says this. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene, and Mary, the mother of James the Younger, and of Joseph, and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come... Since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking Jesus down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. So first of all, in Mark's very brief account of the death and burial of Jesus, you have a number of certifiable witnesses to the fact that Jesus really did die. Mark's out to make very clear that Jesus didn't just pass out for a few moments. The witness of the, the Roman centurion alone is enough to, to solidify the argument. At, at that time and place in history, if a criminal managed to escape, the executioner who declared him dead when he wasn't really dead would be put to death himself. Executioners made sure that the criminals that they were in charge of were undeniably dead. And here, Mark records the centurion's confirmation to the governor Pilate, that Jesus most certainly was dead. In John's gospel account, we're told that one of the soldiers even went so far as to drive a spear into Jesus' side, bursting his heart sack and causing blood and water to flow out of his body. I mean, just, just think about it for a second. What Jesus actually went through on the cross, even if he somehow survived the beatings, the crucifixion, the speared heart, Somehow fooling the executioner, Jesus then would have been wrapped in roughly 100 pounds of burial linens that would have suffocated him. And even if he somehow managed to survive all of that, he then would have had to endure three days in a cold, dark tomb without food, water, or medical attention. And if somehow, if somehow, miraculously, he managed to walk out of that tomb three days later 
I guarantee you this. There's no way, there's no way that upon approaching the disciples that they would have seen Jesus as a triumphant, glorious king in his current bodily state. No way. Secondly, Mark addresses those who might be inclined to argue that Jesus' body was buried in an unmarked tomb and that when they came back three days later, they just managed to have gone to the wrong tomb and found it empty. According to Mark, Jesus' burial tomb would have been easy to find, really easy, because Jesus was, in fact, buried in the tomb of a wealthy, prominent, respected member of the community, a man by the name of Joseph of Arimathea. And not only that, verse 47, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, Joseph saw where he was laid. Had Jesus not really risen from death, it would have been easy to find the tomb, open it up, and present Jesus' cold, dead body as evidence. And as if that wasn't enough, according to Matthew's gospel account, the Pharisees went to great lengths to make sure that the tomb was secure. Armed men were actually stationed outside of the tomb for three days to make sure that the disciples didn't steal the body in order to, to facilitate their movement. The tomb was sealed with a heavy stone. No one's getting in. No one's getting out. Moving into chapter 16, Mark continues to pile on the evidence. He says this in verse 1. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. You see the little details that he's throwing in there for evidence? Verse 5, And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell the disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. It's a very subtle detail here, but in Mark's gospel account, notice that he very intentionally records on three separate occasions, just here in these brief verses that we've looked at this morning thus far, the names of various women who witnessed the events of both Good Friday and Easter Sunday. For one, he's saying, if you want verification of of the things that I'm sharing with you, here are the names of some people in the community that you can actually go talk to. Just go talk to the Marys. They'll hook you up. And along with that, the the fact that Mark includes the testimony of women in and of itself is a, a massively significant detail. We're talking about a time and place in human history in which women were marginalized. The testimony of women was considered not to be very credible. If, if you're trying to make up a story that you want people to believe in Mark's day, the last thing you're going to do is to include women as the first eyewitnesses to the empty tomb. The testimony of women leads credence to the historical accuracy of the event. But not only that, it also communicates the beauty of a God who declares men and women to be of equal dignity and worth. Ladies, the gospel of Jesus Christ says that you matter. Both men and women made in his image. Mark gives us a number of evidences regarding the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And to be sure, he barely, barely scratches the surface. 
The Bible's filled with much more evidence outside of Mark's gospel account that the events of Good Friday and Easter Sunday actually happened. From the the numerous list of eyewitnesses in the gospel accounts, along with Paul's letters dispelling the idea that the sighting of the the risen Jesus was some sort of multiplied hallucination, to Luke's clear declaration that Jesus didn't just rise in spirit, but in the flesh. And then there's the the overwhelming circumstantial evidence. We know that the day of worship changed. The early church started worshiping on Sunday. We're doing it right now. Even though devout Jews had worshiped on Saturdays for thousands of years. By the way, the the Sabbath was pretty sacred to devout Jews. They, they They wouldn't have dared to desecrate the Sabbath unless there was good reason to change the day of worship. And there was. The early church started worshiping on Sunday in memory of Jesus's Sunday resurrection. Not only that, the object of worship changed. Devout Jews went from worshiping God to worshiping Jesus as God. Devout Jews would not have made Jesus the object of worship if they didn't believe he really was God, that he had risen from the grave. To do so would be to worship a false God, a violation of the first two of the Ten Commandments. And then you have the conversion of skeptics. The apostle Paul went from devout Pharisee to devout Christ follower, from Christian killer to Christian. And Paul attributes his conversion to seeing the risen Jesus. And then there's also the suffering deaths of the disciples. A band of brothers who abandoned their jobs and went on tour. Proclaiming unashamedly that Jesus had risen. Proclaiming that they had seen the risen Jesus. What did they get out of the deal, you might ask? They got mocked, beaten, imprisoned, and put to death in torturous ways. For the resurrection of Jesus to simply be some hoax, that would mean that hundreds of people carried the lie to their blood-soaked graves. The evidence for the resurrection, both biblically and circumstantially, is overwhelming. Now, you might ask at this point this morning, why spend so much time on the evidence? And the answer is this. If the evidence doesn't stand up to scrutiny, then neither does the relevance of this all. As the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, Paul says, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Think about that. If Jesus has not been raised, then the proclamation of the gospel is worthless. If Jesus has not been raised, then what we're doing right this very moment is absolutely absurd. If Jesus has not been raised, then then you are Right now, in this moment, singing songs to a dead man who has managed to fool the masses, including you and me. We're we're the content of a grotesque Netflix documentary waiting to be made if Jesus has not been raised. If Jesus has not been raised, you and I, we've placed our faith in a lie. If Jesus has not been raised, then you're a blasphemer for Worshiping one who is not the true God. If Jesus has not been raised, you're still in your sins and under the curse of God's wrath, which bears the question, how do you reconcile yourself to God? What's your action plan? Be nicer 
be a better version of you? We all know that doesn't work. How good is good enough? The best you can do is die with your fingers crossed. If Jesus has not been raised, then we should struggle to get a good night's sleep ever again. If Jesus has not been raised, then all of your loved ones who died worshiping him are under the weight of God's wrath right now. If Jesus has not been raised, then Christians, if you're a professing Christ follower this morning, are the most sad and pathetic people on planet Earth, having devoted our lives to something that's imagined. As I've said before in preaching on the resurrection, if Jesus has not been raised, then the Jenga game is over. Christianity crumbles. Mark emphatically declares, Christian, you are no fool. You're not. Jesus truly did die the sinner's death that you and I deserve to die. Jesus truly did walk away from the tomb, having conquered Satan's sin and death. Our hope is not in a dead Jesus this morning. Our hope is in a risen Jesus. And what that means is that Everything that we contemplated on Good Friday is true. Coming back to that theme of darkness, Jesus really did take our darkness upon himself at Golgotha. The only darkness that truly could have destroyed us forever. And he conquered our darkness in triumphant resurrection. As Peter says, 1 Peter 2.9, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Colossians 1.13, the Apostle Paul says it this way, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. That because the resurrection is true, we're not to be pitied more than all men. Because the resurrection is true, we can rest in the fact that Jesus has dealt with the judgment that should have fallen on us for our sin. That because the resurrection is true, there really is power to turn away from false sources of identity and direction in life. That because the resurrection is true, we can rest assured that we will one day be ushered into the glorious light of God's presence forever. That because the resurrection is true, we can, we can walk away from this auditorium and choose to live differently. It's not easy to, to face sickness, and suffering, and hardship in life when this is the only life that you think you're going to experience. It's not easy to risk our possessions, our, our reputation, even our lives. When we walk in trust that Jesus' resurrection has really and truly opened the door for a happily ever after the likes of which the world has never known, only then are we really and truly free. Free to take risks for God's glory free to hopefully endure hardship and suffering, knowing that, that even our wounds and our scars will only enhance our eternal joy. If you come back to Mark's gospel account, chapter 16, verse 8, many believe that his gospel account ends there, with the first eyewitnesses of the empty tomb fleeing from the tomb in astonishment and fear. Which is how many scholars explain the later edition of verses 9 through 20. After all, Verse 8 is really no way to end a story, is it? That's a terrible ending. Unless, unless you're seeking to show your audience just how scandalous and glorious the gospel of Jesus Christ truly is. The story ends without closure. It forces us to wrestle with the shocking claim of the resurrected Jesus. The question is, are we going to run away like the first eyewitnesses of the empty tomb, or 
Will we declare Jesus to be the risen Savior and King and go tell others the good news and live as though it's true? If you're not a Christian, you come into this place this morning, you can declare Jesus to be your risen Savior and King right now for the very first time. Right there in your seat. You can run to the empty tomb and see the penalty for your sin paid in full. And if you are a Christian, guess what? You can do the very same thing. Just maybe for the dozenth time, the hundredth time, the thousandth time, declaring once again that, that he is risen. He is risen indeed. That you're not in the presence of a dead Jesus right now. You're in the presence of a risen, exalted Savior and King. Let's worship him. In a moment, we're going to move into a number of ways that we can do that. We're going to move into the partaking of the Lord's Supper. If you're a Christian, that meal is for you. We take the bread representing the broken body of Jesus and dip it in the cup representing his shed blood. The, the tables to my left and right, there's one in the back near the coffee table as well, will be open throughout the remainder of this service for you to come and receive of the elements when you're ready. There will also be people in the back of the auditorium to play, pray with and for you if you'd like prayer. And we're also going to continue in a time of worship through song. As we do, think about that. Think about the absolute absurdity of what you're doing if Jesus hasn't truly risen as those words leave your mouth. And think about the beautiful reality that because he is risen, because we worship a risen Jesus, that you're not foolish for singing songs of praise to your risen king.